Uh, I'm Colin Rogers, and I'm one of the elders already introduced by Paul. Um, so let me begin by wishing everybody a happy new year. Uh, may 2022 bring you all the blessings that the Lord has for you. And may we continue to travel in this earthly life, putting our hand in His every step of the way. Well, um, New Year. What does New Year mean to you? Um, what is it? Is it a time for celebration? It certainly is not in Edinburgh this year, as we see on the slide, a time for getting together with zillions of people down on Princess Street um, and setting off the fireworks and listening to music and so on, because of COVID, of course. It's just too risky to do that. But in ordinary circumstances, this is what people would like to do at New Year. Lots of alcohol, merrymaking, kissing a total stranger on Princess Street, lots of things like that. Or could it be a time for making New Year's resolutions? Many people feel that this time of year is a time for uh, using the occasion to, to do certain things like losing some weight or quitting smoking or joining the gym. Um, I, I plan to join the gym again, um, so just to keep myself a wee bit fit. Uh, all the things you see on those post-its on the slide, many people think of these as, as, as the way to use New Year as a kind of annual performance review. How am I doing in my life? Am I on track? Should I adjust things here and there? Or is it perhaps a time to thank God for His goodness during another year and to seek His face for His blessing for the year to come? But if you were to mention the last one I mentioned, uh, to many people, you just get a strange look and say, they say, hey, that's just weird. And yet, that is the option which gets closest to a Christian observance of a new year. But let's be clear from the outset, there is no biblical requirement for Christians to observe a new year. It's a, it's a, it's a merely cultural issue. Uh, the New Testament is ambivalent about this issue. In Romans 5, we we read that one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So we have, we have certain options here as to how we, how we view today, or yesterday, should I say. And in fact, there is only one day in the week and in the year which Christians have any sense of obligation towards, and that is the Lord's Day, today. This is the Christian Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> in regard to other matters of calendar, let's be honest, we're largely in the hands of worldly authorities, human authorities who have calculated the calendar to suit perhaps some social or political or even mathematical purpose. For after all, how do you make sense of a year lasting 365 and one quarter days? And so, the leap year was brought into being to deal with that. Um, and then there was the change from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, courtesy of Pope Gregory. Um, and then there's the question, whose new year are we talking about anyway? I mean, the, we had new year yesterday on January the 1st. Chinese people will have new year on February the 1st. Iranian new year will be March the 20th. And Tamil new year will be April 14th. So take your pick, whichever culture you feel closest to. In fact, there are 26 different New Year's in all uh, throughout the world. 
But the question remains, does the Bible tell us anywhere about a significant new year for God's people, one we should be paying attention to? Answer, yes, it does. It does in the Old Testament. Um, and this is the part where someone who knows anything about uh, the Jews and Judaism might leap in and say, oh, yes, that must be to do with the Festival of Trumpets in September when the Jews blow the shofar trumpet for 10 days leading up to the Day of Atonement. After all, the clue is in the name the Jews give to it, uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the head of the year. Now, that's a good guess, and it's a culturally correct guess, but it's not a biblically correct guess. That's not the new year which God gave for His ancient people. Rosh Hashanah is in the seventh month called Tishri, our September, and there's no record of it being recognized as a Jewish New Year until about uh, two centuries after Christ. And in fact, that's interesting because um, the New Year that became or was adopted as Rosh Hashanah, what the Jews did then, they simply went back to the old Canaanite and Ugaritic New Year in the Middle East, which was often associated with harvest. But I say again, that's not the new year that God set his people. Uh, some rabbis decided it was a good, ti good time to remember a few things in sequence at Rosh Hashanah, like the creation of the human race, also to reflect one's actions in the lights of God's judgment. Now, these are reflections worthy of a new year, but they're not the new year of God's appointing. And if we want to be biblical about the matter, we've got to pay attention to what God has actually said to us. When was that new year then? God's new year. That was in the month of Aviv, which was called Nisan after the exile. It's around our March, April. God appointed it specially for Israel, as we saw from Exodus 12, verse 1. On the first day, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So God was choosing for His people a new year which was separate from the nations round about them. They were to be distinct in this. And what He was doing for them then, He was setting forth a custom. Not just a custom, but something which was, 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 was as we were singing about in those types and shadows which are now fulfilled, something which would bring to their minds very forcibly something that lay at the very heart, someone who lay at the very heart of God's plan of redemption for all his people. Because on the 15th day of that month, God was going to demonstrate his power on behalf of Israel in a, in a way they would never forget, the Passover. And at Passover, two major themes had the limelight, redemption and sonship. These were the two things that Israel were meant to pay special attention to. And so let's consider as our first major point here, one, Israel redeemed from slavery by God's mighty hand. That was what God wanted them to focus on. The Egyptians were going to see that the Lord was totally committed to these two things. One, to redeeming Israel from the oppression they'd suffered. And secondly, to recognizing Israel as his firstborn son. Let's linger a bit just to unpack what these terms actually mean. We, can, we use many terms in church, and sometimes we forget that people don't use that language outside on the street. 
First of all, let's think about, take the second one first. The Lord recognized Israel as his firstborn son. The key to understanding this is to go back a bit in Israelite history to the story of Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons. Uh, I'm sure most of us have heard the story of how unscrupulous Jacob manipulated events so he could get his brother's inheritance. Now, Esau had been the, first, the favored firstborn son of Isaac, who should have had the title and inheritance by the laws and rules of that day. But these came to Jacob instead, the human reason being that Jacob cheated his brother. But although Jacob was a scammer in the methods he used, over the whole story was the sovereign will of Almighty God who had ordained that it was Jacob and his descendants who should carry the line which would produce the Messiah and who would save the world. Israel was the name that God gave to Jacob, not Esau. And that's why the nation of Israel was called God's firstborn, a title which would later find special and ultimate meaning in the birth of the Messiah himself. The second thing to unpack here is what was meant by redemption. Now, in those days, to redeem meant to set free from slavery and oppression. As the Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. But as a result of those mighty acts of judgment, many Egyptians were going to die because the Pharaoh was utterly opposed to submitting to the Lord. Moses was told to say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will take the life of your firstborn son. But the thing to pay special attention to about that was that when God's judgment passed over the whole land of Egypt, all the firstborn sons, irrespective of nationality, were going to die unless they came under the protection of the blood of a slaughtered lamb. The Lord commanded the Israelites to take the blood of the lamb they had killed for the Passover meal and to daub it on the door frames of their houses. As the Lord said, when I go through the land to strike down the Egyptians, I will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame, and I will not enter that house. I will pass over the doorway, which is why it was called Passover. And uh, that illustrates us for us a very, very important second meaning for, this, for the word redemption, not just to be saved from slavery and oppression, but also to be saved from death by the blood of a worthy substitute who died in their place. The Passover lamb, a lamb which, as we read from uh, Exodus chapter 12, had to be without blemish or defect in any way, thus foreshadowing the perfection of the Passover lamb who was to come, Christ. We know what happened after the Egyptian families had suffered the loss of their firstborn sons. The Pharaoh went after them 
He initially allowed the Israelites to leave his land. However, his hardness of heart drove him further to losing not just his pride, but his powerful army in the waters of the Red Sea. It was a mighty redemption from Israel, for Israel, which they still remember to this very day as they celebrate Passover with their families every year in the month of Nisan, about our March, April, Easter, in fact. What a way to start New Year as a nation, to have your God defend you against your mortal enemies in a, in a pillar of cloud and fire, and for Him to open up for you an impossible and impassable way through a sea, so that you can walk over on dry land and see those same waters close over those fearsome enemies and their mighty chariots. I love those words in Exodus 14 where Moses reassures the people. He says, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Wouldn't it be fantastic if somebody said to us at a new year, the problems you've been facing this past year or these several years are, are gone today. You don't have to face them anymore. It was a tremendous relief for Israel. And after the waters have subsided, there's the most deafening cheering and singing from the Israelites. The atmosphere would have been more electric than on Princess Street on a normal non-COVID hogmanay after the stroke of 12. People hugging and kissing uh, total strangers who had all this in common. This, this was what they had that they were all people redeemed by the Lord. At this point, it's really important to stress certain things about the way God redeemed Israel as a kind of template for the way we should understand spiritual redemption now. What are those things? First of all, it was of the Lord and not from men in any way. You only need to be still. That's what God said to them. I will free you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So it was of the Lord. Secondly, it required the blood of the Passover lamb, or they would never even have made it to the Red Sea to be redeemed from slavery. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And thirdly, it required obedience. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And so we move on to our second main point. Um, I just realized as I was putting my PowerPoint together that this slide occurs later, but I'll mention it now. Now, second main point is that Israel not only was redeemed by the Lord's mighty hand, Israel, after they went into the land, were in the custody of the law, awaiting a redeemer. Now, to give them their due, at the Exodus, the Israelites fulfilled God's requirement in an outward way, but then it was an outward physical redemption. It's important to remember that. And during the next few years, the Lord went on to reveal to them the rituals and the ceremonies they should adopt so that a sinful people could maintain a covenant relationship with a holy God. And every one of those rituals and ceremonies was designed to reveal something symbolical about God's coming priest king, the Messiah, who would be their redeemer, not from world powers like Egypt, but from a far more dangerous enemy, sin. The principle at work within every one of us 
which prevents us from obeying and honoring God in our lives. In fact, sin is so powerful a tyrant within us that we read in Galatians 3 verse 22, the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. And this prison of sin is extremely reactive against anything that is of God. In the letter to the Romans, we read that man in his sinful nature, sinful human nature, is, is at enmity with God. Paul points out that although God's law is holy, righteous, and good, when it comes into contact with our sinful nature, it aggravates the sin within us, like pouring petrol on a fire. Which is why Paul says in verse 23 of Galatians 3 that we are not only prisoners of sin, but held prisoners by the law, locked up, and restrained against the commission of even greater evil. Which demonstrates that the main purpose of God in giving Israel His laws from Sinai onwards and into their history in the land was not with the expectation that they could keep it but rather to help them to see that they could not keep it and therefore would need someone to deliver them from its guilt and power. In other words, a redeemer. And, but you know, when you talk to people nowadays and you say to them, well, what does God expect of you? What does God want you to be and to do? They say, well, I think he wants me to obey the Ten Commandments, surely. But as we know, although the, and we'll come to this, although the Jews had that matter all sewn up, found, finding ways to, to obey God's laws outwardly, Jesus came along and said, you're not obeying them inwardly, mentally and spiritually. You're, you're in the deepest dye of sin. After using the illustration of sin and the law as our jailers, in verse 24, Paul uses another illustration from the Roman and Greek culture of his day. He compares the law to a, 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 guardian, a child guardian. They called it the paedagogos, where we get our word pedagogue from. But this paedagogos was not primarily a teacher, as we know the word teacher. He was normally a trusted slave who had custody of the child of his master, a custodian, that's what he was, to accompany him to school, to help him develop, to keep him safe, to correct and discipline him as necessary. The law of God also had this purpose for the Jews, to train and direct them in their lives, to keep them on track and out of moral and spiritual danger, but only for a limited period. Until when? Verse 25, until Messiah came. The law was put in charge to lead us until the Messiah came. Not only did the law show the godly character of the Messiah, but the ceremonies and rituals of the law, we thought about a bit earlier, spoke of him as the one who would redeem his people from sin, from Satan, and from death. So then, redemption is in view here also. Whereas the Israelites were looking back, and still do every Passover, to their physical redemption from Egyptian slavery, they were also being prepared through God's law and the sacrificial system to look ahead to the coming of the only one who could redeem them spiritually and bring them peace with God. And that's the same for you and for me. I'll just leap in here and just say, if you're hoping or thinking there's any way you can find peace with God, 
except through coming to Christ to redeem you personally from your sins, then as they say, you're on a hiding to nothing. It will never happen. Because remember, you're in, you're in prison to sin and to death. But let's think of our third main point here. After being in custody of the law, Israel went and got themselves enslaved again by their own hands. What did they do? They went and enslaved themselves. Instead of looking to the Lord alone for their acceptance with Him, they turned to what Paul calls in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, the basic principles of this world. Now, we need to be a little bit discerning here uh, and make a choice about the, how this verse should be translated. Because we have it here that, we, that uh, when we were underage, he said we were in slavery and under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. There is an alternative trans way of translating that which fits the profile better. The basic principles, the elemental principles of this world. We need to unpack what that means. There have been various suggestions as to what Paul's referring to here. But the best way to understand these basic or elemental principles of this world is to think about John Bunyan's character in the, in the progress, the Pilgrim's Progress. Mr. Worldly Wise Man. You may remember that as Christian was on his way to... Um, to seek, to find the, the release from that burden of sin on his back, he met a man called Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who tried to steer Christian away from accepting the grace of God and to get him to use worldly man-made solutions to solving his sin problem. And to understand what these, this, this, this means, we, we are helped in this by other verses. In verse 9, for example, uh, Paul says there, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles or forces? It's called them forces in our version, but you may see the footnote, principles. Those weak and miserable principles. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And then he gives examples. He says, you're, you're, you're doing religious stuff like observing special days, months, and seasons, and years. You're doing all sorts of things in a religious way, working out this religious system of keeping laws and becoming enslaved to those things, but never being redeemed by God if you, if you look to them. We're also helped here, if you, if you wanted to skip on to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, where uh, something similar was challenging the Colossian church. Colossians 2 verse 20 tells us, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces, or rather to the basic traditions of this world, why as though you still belong to the world, do you still submit to its rules? And he speaks about these rules as things which have to do with, uh, which are all destined to perish with use and are based on merely human commands and teachings. So that, that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at, at human religious traditions that men have worked out for themselves, but not alone. They didn't work these things out all by themselves because the translation elemental spiritual forces does have a bearing here. There is the, in the Greek the suggestion that behind the false religions and ideologies of this world, there are dark spiritual forces 
which are manipulating the minds of men and women, keeping them enslaved in a way which is analogous to the slavery which Israel endured in Egypt. Lest the glorious gospel of Christ, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, should shine in upon them and set them free. <coughs> there are spiritual forces in our world which are spending all their time trying to keep men and women blind to the truth and trying to occupy them with ways of justifying themselves before God. A good example of this is the Jewish Pharisees who lost sight of an atoning Messiah by adding to the law rules, regulations, and traditions. Why? In order to build up merit and impress God. Can we have the next slide, please? Thank you. They, through, through their traditions, they devised a way of keeping God's laws in a purely outward way. And of course, if you do that, you don't need a redeemer. They were redeeming themselves. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on his time as a Pharisee, reflects in Philippians 3, according to our righteousness which comes from law-keeping, I was blameless. Jesus himself pointed out to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, we see here, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. He saw that they were, that they were, they were in a cul-de-sac from which there was, there was no way through to God, but they were holding on to them. Many today do the same. They believe that it's what we do and how we live that moves the heart of God to accept us. But apart from the fact that that puts the focus on us for our own redemption, we will never know that we've done enough to please God. We become like the Israelites before Pharaoh, slaving away to please a despotic master who can never be pleased, never knowing if he will ever be pleased with our efforts. Now, this exactly describes the, the, the position with Islam. Even if a Muslim provide, uh, performs the five pillars rigorously with those five prayers a day and, and all the rest of it, fasting during Ramadan and going to Mecca on Hajj and so on, he or she never ever, even if they do all that, they never have the assurance that God will accept them when they leave this world. The questions are always, have I done enough? Was it good enough for God? And here's something which is closer to home. The same has to be said of Roman Catholicism with its doctrines of meritorious effort and purgatory. The onus being put on the person themselves and things being that which they do. Prayers being said for them after their death and all of that in order to make them right with God. But all of this has nothing to do with, re with biblical redemption. What about you? What is your view of God? What's your view of His law and the basis on which He accepts humans? Perhaps you wouldn't claim like Saul of Tarsus to have worked out a, a system of perfect law-keeping, but there is within you and within the nature of all of us the tendency to hope that God thinks not too badly of us, that we're not bad people as far as humans go, and, as, and that we'll do our best, and God will accept us in the end. Friends, that is a doctrine of devils, those elemental spiritual forces, and it will send you straight to hell if you depend on that. God's Word is very clear on this. In Romans 3.20, no one can ever be made right with God 
by doing what the law commands. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So it's clear that despite our best efforts, we need a redeemer from sin and and from the futile efforts we, we make to justify ourselves in God's sight. And that brings me to my last point, and that is there is a redeemer from sin and death, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And since we're still in the season of Christmas, let's draw from these nativity scriptures in Galatians. Having considered that we humans were in slavery to the weak and miserable self-justifying principles of the world, we read in Galatians 4.4 that when the time, the right time, had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Now, notice, the Lord's never early or late in His interventions. He does exactly what He intends at the moment He intends it. And what we read here is that at that moment, in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises of a Redeemer, foreshadowed by the redemption from, from Egypt, um, which foreshadowed by the, by the sacrifices and rituals and, and laws of the Old Testament, came to culmination point. The Son of God who had many times in the days of the Old Covenant visited humans in a human likeness, now came among them in a true human body and with a truly human soul, from a true human mother and yet without sin. Not because his human mother was, uh, was, was sinless. She wasn't. By her own lips, she too needed God to be her Savior from sin. My spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior, she, she, she says in the Magnificat. But it was because the Holy Spirit surrounded her during the entire pregnancy that, she, that, that the one born of her was the Son of God. And unlike other sovereigns who are above the laws they make, during his entire life, Jesus never claimed special privileges or exemptions If our sovereign uh, does something against the law, she can never be prosecuted because she's above the law. Jesus was never above the law. The King of Kings was never above the law. He yielded to those laws uh, and he placed himself under them because by keeping those laws himself through a perfect life, he was then in a position to yield up that perfect sinless obedience to his Father as our perfect Passover lamb without fault, without blemish, or any defect, so that He could be the acceptable sacrifice to redeem us, who are not only under the law's obligations, but also its condemnation. However, there's there's no doubt that the Jews of Jesus' day, they weren't looking for a Redeemer from sin. They were looking for a Redeemer who would lead them to victory against their military oppressors. For hundreds of years, Largely due to their disobedience against Yahweh, the Lord had allowed them to be, Jerusalem to be downtrodden by one empire after another. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. And the Jews yearned for a Messiah who would lead the nation back to days of glory. They wanted another exodus, except this time it would be their enemies, the Romans, who would do the leaving, not them. And uh, that's why they welcomed Jesus with cries of, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us now. 
redeem us. As, as, as Moses delivered the people from the Egyptians. That's the way they saw it. They spread their cloaks just before, before him, just before the Passover. Hopes were, were high for a political national redemption. And that's why when he died, all their hopes were dashed. They felt that their knees were buckling and their, their hands were hanging down. And as the two on the Emmaus road said to the resurrected Jesus, not knowing it was He. They said, we had hoped He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But the chief priests and rulers handed Him over to be sentenced to death and crucified Him. The Lord Jesus at that moment had to reconfigure their minds and give them a quick course in Old Testament theology to see that no matter how much he could have changed their lives outwardly through our military redemption. It was only through himself becoming the Passover lamb and dying for their sins that they could have any future at all. But although the, the Jews did get so much wrong in the, the worldly and outward way, they looked at just about everything, um, they did get something right. The Jewish rabbis taught this, that the Messiah would arrive suddenly on the eve of Passover. Rabbinical writings say, in Nisan we were redeemed in the past, and in Nisan we are destined to be redeemed again. And they were right. The Redeemer and our Redeemer too did come at the Nisan Passover, our March, April, and gave His life for the lost world, so that whoever believes in Him will not face the terrors of, of death, but have eternal life. We've heard of not being able to see the wood for the trees. For the Jews, the only thing is they couldn't see the cross for the wood. Instead of seeing the great truth that God in Christ had come to redeem them from the helplessness of their sin, they tried to redeem themselves by their works. And this new year, you may be hoping that God will change your life in specific measurable ways. We even speak about redeeming a situation, don't we? in the sense of making it better. And we all hope for that at a new year, don't we? Oh, that this year would be better than last year. But can I say that if the ways you'd like your life to change this year do not include your looking to Jesus Christ as your Redeemer from sin and the Lord of your life, then all other changes you may hope for are superficial, outward, and ultimately futile. Because the idea of a New Year resolution proceeds from a de determination founded on flawed human nature rather than dependence on the grace and mercy of a redeeming God. It was at a New Year that the Lord focused the minds of Israel on their need to be redeemed from slavery from Egypt and to be covered with the blood of the Passover lamb, protected. And it's therefore highly suitable that at this New Year we do the same and also that we who trust Him as our Redeemer and Lord should participate together in the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted that Passover night so long ago. Christ, as the New Testament tells us, Christ is our Passover lamb. We need to see that through faith in His suffering and death for us, we too are protected by the blood of the Lamb of God and set free from the slavery of sin. Peter said to the Jewish Christians in his first letter, you know, he says, that it was not with perishable things 
as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. <coughs> Finally, let's remind ourselves that the, the reason that the Lord was committed to redeeming the Israelites was because He recognized the nation of Israel as His firstborn son. That was, a, that was a symbolical national sonship because it was from Israel that the eternal Son of God would come according to His human nature. But symbolically, it was more than that. It was because, as Paul says in Galatians 4-5, God had the express intention through the redemption by Christ of adopting people from every nation, not just Israel, but every nation into a family of His own, now the nation would not simply, it wouldn't just be a symbolical uh, national sonship, it would be a sonship and daughterhood of all of those who are in God's family. We read, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. In the Roman world, such adoption included only males, but as Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 28 of Galatians, the redeeming work of Christ includes Gentiles as well as Jews, females as well as males, whatever our race, our gender, our culture, our nation, or language, if we have come to know what it means to be redeemed from sin through Jesus, then we are sons and daughters of the living God and brothers and sisters of Christ." As Jesus told the disciples not long before He went again to heaven, He said, I'm returning to my Father, who is now your Father, to my God and your God. So we're children, and if we're children, then we are heirs of the glory of God with Christ. Two questions to focus on as we draw to a close. How can I know? Number one, how can I know that I have been redeemed by Christ and adopted into God's family? And the second one is, if I'm not sure, how can I know? First of all, then Paul tells us that in verse 6, that the Spirit of God's Son has been sent into the heart of every one of His children. It's the Spirit within which calls out, Abba, Father, within us the spirit of sonship. So, the spirit is within you. As Paul also says in Romans 8, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So, the question is, do you have that sense of God's spirit within you calling out, Abba, Father? Do you recognize God as your Father in that redemptive way through Christ? But if someone's not sure how you can know by following the advice given in John chapter 1, verse 12, where we read that to all who received Him, that is Christ, the Word, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So the question would then be, have you done that? Have you asked Christ to come into your life as your Savior and Redeemer from sin? Have you received Him? Has He been given a welcome into your life? If you do need further help or advice on how to do that, then you can do one of several things. After this service, I'll, I'll be at the door if you want to ask me anything about anything I've said. 
Um, or you could go to our Connect Corner, which is on the left just before you go out, and one of our members will be delighted to help you. Or if you prefer a more anonymous approach, please email us at info at charlottechapel.org and let us know how we can be of service to you, and we'll get back to you. <clears throat> now, many of the decisions and resolutions we make at New Year soon fade into obscurity. If God is speaking to you today, making clear in your mind certain things from what has been said here today, if He's encouraging you to put your trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, as your Redeemer, then I urge you, do not put off making this your utmost priority. Give yourself no rest until you've come face to face with your Redeemer in prayer. Ultimately, no one has ever regretted putting their trust in Jesus Christ. That's one of the most glorious testimonies of the Christian. You'll be hard spent finding a Christian who, um, who regretted putting their trust in the Lord Jesus. A long, long time ago, the Lord declared a New Year resolution to redeem His people from the clutches of a tyrannical Pharaoh and to lead them to a promised land. And through the rest of their lives, although they let Him down times without number, and so have we, but He never failed them, and He has never failed us, not once. He is totally trustworthy. Put your trust in Him today for redemption, today and forever. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can call You Father if we know that Your Son, Jesus, as our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. And that cry of Abba, Father, reaches up. We know we have great assurance that it reaches up to the heart of God, that You care for us. Such pity as a father has and to his children dear, such pity shows the Lord to such as worship Him in fear. We, we worship You with that reverence, O Lord, which is due to Your name, the, the, the glorious name of Yahweh, our God, our Savior, Redeemer. And we commit our lives into Your keeping for this coming year. May we go with You, as the saying goes in, in many cultures, go with God. May we do so, Lord, every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.